listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Car sent you. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Aren't you scared you'll kill yourself if you crash? Welcome to the United States. This is the place where big things happen. Hey, baby, I'll take you around the world. I've just come from halfway around the world. You English? Heavens no, I'm from New Zealand. Where? Welcome to Hollyweird. I can't believe it. I mean, I'm here. What exactly do you intend to do here in the United States? I'll set a land speed record. That's what we're here for. Surgery machine is not safe. Suspension is right out of the 1920s. What is this? It's a cork from a brandy bottle. <laughs> the front forks are going in your time. You got no fire extinguisher, no safety chute. You're too old. Bollocks. Just can't run. From the director of 13 Days and the Recruit. I'm sorry, Bert. Starring Academy Award winner Anthony Hopkins. Oh, Bert Monroe's not ready to finish yet, I'll tell you that, mate. the most determined man I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. Dad doesn't think you can do it. He says everyone thinks that. Except me. Holy smoke. Based on one hell of a true story. Ever since I was a lad, I've been interested in things that go fast. Fastest Indian. You know how fast you're going back there? Yeah, about uh, 150, 160 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. And now. Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Button up my sleeve. Presto! <laughs> no doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now, here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, I'm Paul Kelly, a driver of the Chattanooga Choo Choo Jet Dragster. And you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned into Nostalgia Opinion Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tan Talk. Tan Talk. Some. Tan Talk. Right on the wall. Tan Talk Radio Network. Easy for you to say. Man, I can't live by it. 1340.com. There you go. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. How are you doing tonight, Bobby? I'm doing good now that you mentioned it. Okay. How's Tommy doing hiding back behind the COVID 2020 window over there? Um, got my mask on, ready for the show. Okay, okay, that's good. So it's a transparent mask, but that'll work. <laughs> it's one big mask, big big glass mask. It's a big glass mask. Anyway, all right, we've got an exciting show for you tonight. We're going to go really, really, really fast. Yes, we are. Well, you talk fast enough, so. Well, I talk good. fast enough, that's true. That's good. So, okay, Bobby, you want to go ahead and give uh, our good buddy there at Only in America, Only Bill Cochran. America. Uh, six o'clock here on Tan Talk Radio Network, and also now on his minute at eight six or eight noon and six o'clock here on Tan Talk Radio Network. Go to mypillow.com and use promo code Bill. Go to mypillow.com. Turn your uh, phone off when you're in the radio station and uh, <laughs> use mypillow. Use uh, mypillow. Use promo code Bill. Promo code Bill and get yourself the greatest night's sleep. That you've ever, that ever, you ever had. In the whole wide world. In the whole yes. wide world. There yes. you go. Okay, so uh, before we get into our special guest, we're actually going to make this a longer segment because every once in a while we get a guest on the show that just really, really knows his stuff and is so interesting and so fascinating. You just, you got to listen to the whole thing. I mean, it's a super, super story. And it's very detailed. And it's, uh, well, yes. I'll surprise you guys. I, I I don't like letting the kitty out of the bag. But anyway, all right. So here's what I'm going to talk about tonight. Um, don't forget, we got. Uh, if you want to find out where all the car shows are, definitely check out flacarshows.com. Right, Bobby? Yes, FLA Car Shows is the place to go. And uh, you, we're we're on Facebook Live. We're on YouTube Live. Share them. Tell you. They get everybody to see us here in the studio if they can't just hear us. Yes, and, yes, uh, yes. That's important. I that's, need to. We always need to say that. Exactly. Then. Um, Obviously, the, in a couple of weeks, uh, we will be in Orlando at the Heritage... What's the name of that place again? Uh, that's Osceola Heritage Park. Um, that is uh, in Kissimmee, just outside of Kissimmee. It's in Osceola County, as by the name Osceola Heritage Park. For the big, big, big Kissimmee Meekum Auction, mm-hmm. the special event for the summer. Now, they always do their big event, which is 3,000 cars in January, and uh, they've worked their way up to the officially the first auction of the year now they're doing a special one here in the summer and they've got a thousand cars we had john on last week john is uh kramer is the voice of meekum so uh go to the podcast and listen yeah go to the podcast listen to him super guy and he's a guitarist so you know we're kind of like uh on the same page and yep and he'll tell you uh everything you need to know about meekum the the covid guidelines for meekum that's exactly right so we'll all be wandering around there and yes i will succumb to a mask i will wear a mask mask. a meekum mask yes well actually we might be wearing our we'll have our own nostalgic freedom cars mask there will be a lot of meekum masks there will be a lot of meekum masks that's true (laughs) okay so now having said that also, ordinarily this time, this would, if this would be an ordinary schedule, an ordinary year, um, this would be Speed Week in Bonneville. Okay, the Bonneville Soft Flats where land, LSR, Land Speed Records, are achieved. Okay, and I think they do it twice. I think they do it in August, and then there's another event in, um, and it's in Wendell something or other, Utah. Wendover, Utah, I think that's where it is. 
Man, I'll tell you what. Sounds like something I've heard before. When you're getting older, your memory goes bad. So, guys, let me tell you something. Take your, eat your vitamins, okay? That's what uh, Dr. IG would say. Mm-hmm. Eat your vitamins, eat healthy, and uh, so you, then so eat you, your barbecue. Then eat your barbecue at the Rib Shack Barbecue mm-hmm. at uh, 426 West Bay Drive. 727 Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, of course, you know, when I wander in town here, I always make a pilgrimage to my good friends over there at... Uh, at uh, Tri-City Bolt and Screw. Now, I normally get little nuts and bolts and screws and stuff like that because they got the best selection in town. Also, a lot of stainless steel stuff, which I do have a tendency to change out of my cars, boats, and motorcycles. Loose. Yeah, I got some screws loose. But anyway, so a big shout-out to my friends over there, Timmy and them at uh, Tri-City Bolt and Screw. And here is their phone number, 727-546-4411. That's an easy number to remember. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like Rib Shack Barbecue is uh, 727-501-9090. Is that it? Yes, that is That's That it. is okay. it. And they are at, in Tri-City Bolt and Screw is at 10380. U.S. Highway 19, yeah. Pine Nellis Park, Florida. Just north of 49th Street. Okay, so now, having said that, we got Speedway covered, we Florida car shows, Meekum. Um, I'm working on, I'm st- you know, I, I, one of the things that I do is I do, obviously, appraisals, diminished value, and total losses. Every once in a while, I get something that kind of, there's a fly in the ointment or a wrench in the a wrench in the deal there somewhere. But anyway, so this one car that I'm particularly working on right now, which is a 2002 Ferrari, 360. Now, let me tell you guys something about buying wrecked, rebuildable cars. This this is the second time I've ran into this. The first time was one of my customers over in Oldsmar, and they'd bought a truck off the, uh, the you're familiar with IAA, which is Insurance Auto Auction, um, and then there's also uh, Copart, okay? And those of us in the salvage business, or formerly in the salvage business, you know, we, we used to buy from a company called Sadisco. I'm not sure if Sadisco's still around, but Copart is, and they're a national company, and so is IAA. And uh, so this is where, like, when your car is deemed a total loss, this is where your car would go if it was a salvage vehicle, a wreck, okay? And then uh, you get a check from the insurance company. You know, after you fight for a long period of time, you'll get something. But anyway, so the cars wind up at either Copart or IAA. All right, so here's the deal. I'm a licensed independent car dealer, and I go to, well, Mannheim. That's the auction mm-hmm. we go to, or Odessa or someplace like that. We generally buy running, driving, clean, nice cars. And usually I buy something, you know, that's three, four years old, drive it for a little bit, sell it, and then I go buy another one. And, um, and then I deal in classics and antiques. Now, salvage cars we used to buy from Sadisco because I bought those to feed my salvage yard along with the cars that I would buy off the streets or buy from impounds and so on, right? Now, what people don't really realize is that we go to the auction and we buy cars. Now, a lot of guys will buy a car at one auction and that needs a little bit of work, you know, let's say like a diamond in the rough, let's say, and minimal damage maybe or something like that, a whole host of reasons, okay? And they fix it up and then they take it back to the auction. Those are just generally wholesalers. But at these salvage auctions, this is what's been happening quite a bit. Now, it's nothing new, but this is the second time that I've run into a late model vehicle where I would consider this, I deem this fraud. So what happened was, is on this 2019 Dodge Laramie, whatever it is, top of the line thing, okay, the car was purchased at one auction, and it was hit really, really hard, deemed the total. Then the car was bought by a shop, and they brought the vehicle home, and they pulled it and straightened it to make it look less than what the, the damage appeared less than what it was. Then they stitched up all the airbags, cut the airbags, stuffed everything back in so the, so the dash pad looked okay, and the, where the airbags came out of the, the side air, impact airbags, the ones that fall down from the, from the headliner and stuff like that, they cut all that stuff. Okay, so now in the ad, when the car is 
represented when the cars when they take a picture of it, they advertise it at Copar or at IAA. They're supposed to take pictures of the car and they're supposed to disclose everything. But and I know this from my own personal experiences at an auction, I can only disclose what the owner gives me. Okay, so in other words, if the owner's not forthright, they won't tell you everything that's wrong with the vehicle. They'll just tell you some of the stuff. So this is why I tell you, no matter what auction you go to, buyer beware. Buyer beware whether you're going to Mannheim, whether you're going to Meekham, whether you're going to Russo, whether you're going to Hollywood, whether you're going to Barrett, whether you're going to Gooding, whether you're going to RM, whether you're going to any of the auction. Bonhams makes no difference, especially IAA and Copart. Now, I'm really good friends with the guys at IAA. So those are my friends, and they're right here. There's one here in Clearwater on 49th Street. There's two in Orlando. And there's one north in Hudson, in that area, which used to be Pasco Auto Salvage. Okay, IAA is a very reputable company, and I know some of the the, the guys up there that are heavyweights, and and they're they're ser- they're heavy they're right they're they're honest players. Anyway, but people, customers, businesses, you know, that's where you got to watch yourself. Okay, because they can only do so much. So what happened in the case is they, this car was this truck was crashed and fixed, and then sent back through the auction, and the pictures were taken were very, at a, what I would consider at a bad angle, very misleading. Long and short of it, the guy bought the vehicle, the car in Texas, the car got dropped off here, and was a complete fraud. I was involved in it, and I did some homework and some research. Just remember, very often, if a car, this is in the last three to five years, serial numbers on cars, if they've been crashed or if they've had any issues, okay, um, let alone the, will it show up on a Carfax or a VIN check or something like that, um, there, if you punch in the VIN number, it may show up on the internet. Okay, it just depends. In this particular case, this car did, this truck did. It showed it when the car was actually purchased, you know, in the fall of one year, fixed, and then sent back to the auction two months later, and then purchased and resold. Okay, so there, this is where this investigative stuff comes in at a little bit, where you got to do your homework, okay? Well, this Ferrari that I'm working on, same situation. I was able to, through my connection, through my networking, figure out that this vehicle was sold back in the day, a number of years ago. And prior to the uh, person buying the car, selling the car, the second time, which was unbeknown to anybody, the car was purchased at Copart in California, okay, deemed as total salvage, says salvage on the paperwork, okay. Then it was taken someplace, stretched, pulled, and fixed, and then, sh- and, and then shot back at another auction. Because if you read the description, the description said the car had an accident with an inanimate, inanimate, what am I saying? Was ina- inanimate object. Inanimate object. So basically, he hit something that was stationary, okay? So, or he ran off the road. Nonetheless, it was damaged in the left front. Now, they camouflaged the car and fixed it. Now, and in in, in when I saw the pictures, the, key, the telltale sign was, if I crash the car, the fender does not unbolt itself and wind up on the side of the car. It will rip, tear, and shred away it'll be mangled, but it's not unbolted from the car. In this particular picture, the kind of the, the red flag, we always say there's a red flag, the red flag was, the fender was laying beside the car, unbolted, hmm. clearly. So I'm thinking, okay, the airbags were put back in the car. The airbag, when it, on some cars, they pop in half, on some cars, they just blow up, and you know, they kind of like the whole, the whole uh, horn button basically just kind of blows off to one side and the bag comes out and saves your life. But, like I said, more often than not, in your lower-end cars, it basically, this is a Ferrari, so obviously they didn't want to blow the, the emblem apart. So, anyway, so they cut the airbag, stuck it back in, so it looked as if the airbags weren't deployed. But in the, but in the description, it said bags deployed. 
But that's all it said. So some sucker bought the car. He gets the car here, realizes the car was fixed, and it's beyond, well, man, I don't want to mess with this. So then he goes and pedals it to the next guy who pedaled it to the next guy, which is my guy. So now I am doing this investigative research to try to find all this back. This is what they call deductive reasoning, deductive investigating or something like that. I forget what the term is. It's a lot, deductive logic. Um, at any rate, so I've actually got back to the actual insurance company who at this point hasn't contacted me because what I need is a copy of the original repair order from the insurance company or the body shop at the time of the original accident because from that I can denote, deter, discern, decipher how serious the accident was and you know where it went from there. So this is this this requires you know, some experience. Um, fortunately, I have that background a little bit, which leads me to this next thing. This is something I'm looking into, which is called traffic crash reconstruction or forensic crash investigations. Or and there's actually the Institute of Traffic Accident Investigation where you can actually get a degree in this. And Kaiser University actually advertises; they actually offer this as a course. So might be something interesting to talk about never, down the road. On might, the show. Yeah, right. Okay. On that note, what we're going to do is we're going to fire up the stereo. We're going to go to a commercial break real quick, and then we're going to get our very special guest on for the evening because we need time. We need to let somebody else talk for a little bit, right, Bobby? Yeah. Right, I need to save this push pin right there. Hey, you're tuning into Nostalgia Beating Cars. We're going with a little jazz and Glenn Miller tonight. How about a little Chad Minkachuchu? Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Got a great show for you this evening. It's my day Bend an ear and listen to my version Of a really solid Tennessee excursion Pardon me, boy Is that the Chattanooga Juju? Yes, yes, track 29 Boy, you can give me a shine you afford to board Chattanooga Choo Choo? I got my fare and just a trifle to spare. You leave the Pennsylvania station about a quarter to four, read a magazine, and then you're in Baltimore. Dinner in the diner, nothing could be finer. Then do have your ham and eggs in Carolina. When you hear the whistle blowing eight to the bar. Then you know that Tennessee is not very far. Shamble all the coal in, gotta keep it rolling. Ooh, ooh, Chattanooga, there you are. There's gonna be a certain party at the station. Satin and lay. I used to call funny face. We're going to take a look at the work of a team of rocketry enthusiasts working in Germany in the late 20s and early 30s, led by Max Vallier and Fritz von Opel. Vallier was an Austrian who helped form the German Space Flight Society, 
or VFR, which was an early group of spaceflight and rocketry enthusiasts. He'd originally trained as a machinist, but had never completed his studies. He ended up working largely as a freelance science writer. After reading Hermann Oberth's book, The Rocket into Interplanetary Space, Vallier was inspired to write a new version of the book that would explain Oberth's concepts in terms that an average layman could understand. His book, The Advance into Space, was published in 1924 and went through six separate printings by 1930. Vallier worked with a gentleman by the name of Fritz von Opel to develop a number of rocket-propelled vehicles. Von Opel was the grandson of the founder of the Opel Company, a German manufacturing company, which was one of the leading automotive manufacturers in Europe at the time. Vallier saw these experiments with rocket-propelled vehicles as an opportunity to promote rocketry in general, while Von Opel saw this as an opportunity to help promote the family company. The pair worked with a fellow rocketry enthusiast by the name of Frederick Sander. Sander was a German pyrotechnics engineer who owned a manufacturing firm that specialized in solid-propellant rockets. A rocket-powered rail car developed by the team. The first launch was successful. It reached a top speed of 157 miles per hour. It was powered by a cluster of 30 solid propellant rockets. The Rack 2 rocket-powered car developed by Vallier, Von Opel, and Sander. That car achieved a top speed of 143 miles per hour and was powered by 24 rockets containing a total of 264 pounds of propellant. It was considered a major publicity success by the Opel company. Opel put a lot of money into these projects. A purpose-built railway and the high banked sides appear to be some sort of concession to safety. The March 28 exhibition where the Volkart R1 was exhibited by the Vallier von Opel Sander team. This was a rocket-powered car driven by Kurt C. Volkart, an Opel test driver who was fairly prominent in Germany at this time. It didn't go very fast. Uh, sources conflict on the top speed that the car reached. Uh, figure it was somewhere in the 47 to 62 mile an hour range. This particular exhibition took place at Germany's famed Nürburgring racetrack, where races are held to this day. Hi, I'm Casey Jones, owner and driver of the Cannonball Express Jet Dragster, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Car. Okay, we're back, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman is a real live rocket scientist and a world land speed record holder with the famous Blue Flame jet car. Well, actually, it was uh, land speed record cars. I'm delighted to welcome the show this evening the real live, the one and only Dick Keller. Dick, how you doing? I'm doing fine, and don't call it a jet car. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> what? Uh, well, now I played that little clip on uh, with uh, Vallier and Mr. Fritz Opel von Opel because somewhere I read in your bio that those uh, guys had a little influence on you uh, when you were youngin and you took an interest in uh, rocket technology. Yeah, we had a uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. And in, in, in the uh, issue on automobiles, they showed the Opel RAK-2 rocket car. Right. Uh, my initials are RAK, and I'm the third. So, oh, coincidental. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. 
So tell us how this all came about for you. I mean, when you were a kid, did you have chemistry sets and play with little rockets and stuff like that? I mean, did the, and and you know what was it like? And or or did you gravitate to cars right away? Oh, and bicycles. Well, you were into bicycles too, right? Oh yeah, I've raced bicycles, but yeah, I, as a kid, you know, I had a chemistry set. Uh, a lot of kids did, and we used to make things and try and blow things up and that kind of thing. <laughs> then we, uh, after the war, uh, these little CO2 cartridges were available. Uh-huh. Uh, they used them for uh, uh, personal flotation devices uh, in the military. And so after the war, you could get them for a nickel. And so we made little balsa wood uh, cars that you could put these uh, CO2 cartridges in. And uh, they would take off and go like hell. So <laughs> that was, you know, kind of what we were doing. Then, as uh, when I got into uh, uh, seventh and eighth grade, uh, you know, us young guys were interested in cars. We were going to be able to drive one day, and uh, so a few of us got together and, and formed an automobile club when we were in seventh grade, <clears throat> uh, called the Igniters Auto Club of Chicago. And uh, so uh, our, our dads would take us to the drag strip. There was a abandoned airport nearby where they used to run drag races on Sunday. And we'd go and watch the drag races. So, you know, that kind of fueled our enthusiasm. And uh, when we got into high school, of course, uh, different guys had different kinds of clubs, and they all had club jackets. So we, we had to get club jackets. So our club jackets on the back, it was embroidered Igniter's Auto Club. But we were still too young to drive a car. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone was kind of laughing at us because, uh, you know, because of that fact. But we couldn't wait. And I know on my 16th birthday, I finally got my driver license. So that was terrific. So what was your first car? Well, my first car uh, was a 1938 Chevy Coupe. And uh, it was a little slow, huh. and I managed to uh, pick up a uh, Corvette engine uh -huh. and rebuild it and uh, put it in the car. And uh, back then, we did a lot of street racing in the streets in Chicago, where I lived. So uh, we would go down to the local uh, drive-in, uh, Skip's drive-in, and they had uh, car hops there. Uh-huh. You couldn't get out of the car, <clears throat> but it was on the corner of First Avenue and North Avenue in Maywood. So the uh, the girls would be the go-betweens, and we set up drag races with the other cars in the parking lot of the uh, of the drive-in. Uh -huh. And then uh, they would keep track of where the cops were set up. So if they were set up to uh, on First Avenue, then the girls would tell us, "Okay, race on North Avenue." So you know, a bunch of the guys would motor out slowly to line the road to watch the race and then the two cars that were going to race to go out together and uh, somebody would be the flag man and get us going down North Avenue or first. We never got a ticket. <laughs> wow. So then where did it go from there? How did it get real serious? You went to the uh, Illinois Institute of Technology and uh, yeah. and we, you, you were always in the cars though, right? Because I know you had a couple dragsters um, you played with some motorcycles, so tell us some of those really cool stories. Well, 
Actually, I was really interested in sports car racing, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, one of the fellows I worked with at IIT, one of the uh, PhD chemists, had a G-modified Elva Climax, and it was a second- or third-hand car, so I was pretty handy and had tools and all that, so you know, we, re- we rebuilt the car and made it competitive, and we would race, like in the Chicago region, Sports Car Club of America races, mm-hmm. and we got better and better. So we were beating uh, all these doctors and dentists that had these had the, had the money. So they went out and, and bought new cars and hired mechanics to compete with us. So we were just, you know, racing uh, for for a cup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I figured, you know, this isn't this isn't going to pay off. So I. At that time, uh, I, w- I went to uh, Sebring for the uh, International Automobile Race in 1958. Uh-huh. And uh, by a uh, turn of circumstance, I ended up uh, meeting Don Garlitz. He had a uh, speed shop in Tampa. So I had extra tickets, and I asked him if he'd be interested in coming with me to watch the 12 hours of Sebring. He said, sure. He brought his wife, Pat, along. <clears throat> And so we went and watched the race, and he was pretty enthused about it. And uh, so I ended up staying at his house, and then uh, I got to, got to see his dragster at that time, the, the Swamp Rat. Uh-huh. In fact, uh, just a couple months before, he had set the drag racing record 176 miles an hour in 8.79 seconds. I'll never forget. And so he, he showed me... And, uh, Edis Kandarian was taking out ads in Drag News, which I was getting at the time. So I, I knew about the car. So he showed me the car, and I couldn't believe it. It was, you know, basically uh, 1932 Chevy rails with a Chrysler V8 in it, and extremely crude. The body was held on with sheet metal screws, but uh, it was fast. And so I arranged... Uh, to get off from work on occasion, I could uh, meet him at the drag strips around the country because he was on he was going on tour, <clears throat> and uh, so I crew for him. So I got pretty interested in drag racing at the time. But uh, meanwhile, I was pretty busy at work too, so I kind of was backing off from uh, my racing activities and working in the research institute at IIT. So. Uh, one of my uh, friends there, he, he was working in a lab adjacent to mine, uh, Ray Dousman, and uh, he was working in on propellants uh, research. And we used to have uh, lunch together and all that, and uh, I kept telling him about drag racing. So we took him to a drag race one day, and uh, after that he said, you know, for all that uh, noise and horsepower and spinning tires and all that, you know, you could go a lot faster with a rocket. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he, he brought the idea up. Okay. So then uh, we, we talked about it a little bit. And at that time, uh, the uh, jet car guys, Art Arfons, Walt Arfons, and a couple of other guys, Romeo Palamides, were uh, buying surplus jet engines and putting them into dragsters and running them as exhibition cars. So 
we thought, gee, it would be interesting. Maybe we could do that. But uh, so we put together uh, a three-phase program. You know, we were young guys with families, kids, no money. (laughs) But we put together a three-phase program. First, we wanted to see if we could build a rocket that would be usable. And then we would build a, a, a rocket dragster if we could make that work. And then the, the idea was eventually to look at a land speed record. So uh, even although that idea didn't really come up for a while. So but, was the, uh, the first drag uh, rocket dragster you built, was that the X-1? Correct, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we started off, we, we uh, did some research on rocket propellants and all that and decided uh, high-strength hydrogen peroxide would be safe and easy to build a rocket with. So we built a 25-pound thrust rocket just to see if we could do it and meet our design expectations, and it worked fine. So then this, we decided if we're going to get serious about this, next thing we have to do is build the dragster. So uh, a friend of mine, Pete Farnsworth, was uh, building uh, Chrysler-powered uh, uh, dragsters, and he was pretty pretty good craftsman as well as... Uh, Hot rudder. I had known him for quite a while, but uh, so we talked to him about it, and he was interested. So we just decided to pool our money, which wasn't much, and build the X1 dragster. So we scaled the motor up a hundred times, to 2,500 pounds thrust, and uh, so this was in uh, 1966. We had the thing uh, put together finally without a body. And we wanted to uh, try and get uh, sponsors interested in helping us complete this thing and run it. So we took it out to the drag step. We did some static testing. So I was the uh, test dummy in this case. <laughs> so we, we had a chain down, and we ran the motor, and so we were getting the power we wanted. So then we wanted to demonstrate uh, that we could throttle the engine and... Uh, and stage it just like a regular dragster. So I, I, I staged it a couple of times and ran it down the strip. But we didn't have any parachutes on the car at the time, so only, I, I ran it a little over 100 miles an hour just to show that we could do it. And then uh, we had taken films of all this so we could use it to try and promote uh, some sponsorship. <clears throat> well, it was a nice idea, but... Uh, we never did promote the sponsorship we wanted, so we kept, I got a, a part-time job to make some extra money, and we pooled our money and built the car. And uh, in my uh, test drive, it occurred to me that I, uh, my, uh, uh, the cars that I had raced before, I wasn't going much over 100, 120 miles an hour. This thing was gonna go over 200. So uh, I thought maybe, maybe we need to, have someone else drive this thing. It might take me too long to learn how to get there. So Pete and I had a, a friend, Chuck Suba, uh, that was a, a prominent uh, drag racer. He'd raced motorcycles, and then he raced uh, fuel dragsters, and at the time he had a couple of jet cars. So uh, I talked to him, showed him our, some of our film, and said, you know, would you be interested in driving the X-1? And... Uh, if we can get a sponsor for a land speed car, you can drive that too. 
so uh, Chuck drove it. Uh, we took it to the drag step and ran it a couple of times. We, even without the body, we were going faster than what the uh, world records were for uh, drag racing at that time. And so uh, at that point, he's, he said, uh, jets suck. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of a double on town because jets, you know, suck in air to go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he also decided uh, this thing was such a smooth ride, so easy to run and so forth. He would rather do that than mess around with the jets. So he sold his jets, and we went ahead and got the X1 running. And so we were racing it. Uh, we, we, we'd uh, run it as an exhibition car, and we'd try and get some match races with, with the jet cars, which we did occasionally. But uh, and right off the bat, uh, we had turned some pretty fast times the first time we took it out um, in 1967. <clears throat> and we took it out to Crown Point, Indiana, Route 30 drag strip, and uh, ran a 641 ET. 189 miles an hour because we weren't running it uh, all the way through the traps with uh, full power. We, 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 weren't, we were more interested in being able to stop <laughs> than go, go fast, you know. But uh, at that time, there was a lot of hocus-pocus with uh, uh, strange uh, times being promoted by different racetracks. And then they broadcast our our, our ET is 5.41 seconds, and that's 6.41. So and that got around the, the country in the Drag News magazine. So when we were trying to set up match races with the jet cars, you know, they didn't want to race us, or if they raced us, they wanted a handicap head start. So we raced against a few of them. We had to give them one second or one and a half second head start. And uh, quite often we beat them even with that. Oh, wow. <laughs> So at the end of 67, uh, we were down in the low sixes and over 200 miles an hour. And uh, I called up Wally Parks. I said, hey, uh, how about letting us run NHRA drag strips? And Wally laughed because they, they didn't want jets. And he laughed. And, of course, uh, he was one of the founders of Southern California Timing Association. Yep. Where they were racing on the dry lakes. Yeah, Mirage. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, but uh, so he said, "Why don't you take it to Bonneville? <laughs> but don't take it to our race tracks." <laughs> okay. So we had to run on tracks that were not NHRA sanctioned, but there were quite a few at the time because uh, I think even at that time uh, NHRA wasn't running fuel, or maybe they had just started running fuel. But for a long time, NHRA only ran gas dragsters. Mm-hmm. So the, the fuel cars all ran on ran at tracks like American Hot Rod Association and so on. Uh, they were in competition with NHRA. And IHRA too, right? Oh, IHRA too, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So at any rate, um, so we had the, the car running pretty good. So uh, in 1968, <clears throat> uh, we increased the uh, size of the fuel tank so we could run it. Uh, faster through, through the traps, and I was uh, at that time I had left IIT Research Institute, and I was working at the Institute of Gas Technology, which was also at IIT. But we were doing contract research for the natural gas industry, 
And uh, so my boss there uh, uh, kept hearing me talking about the the rocket car when we were having lunch, and he was wondering what that was all about. So I said, "Well, come on out and watch it run." So we were we went out to one of the drag strips where we were running the car, I think Oswego, Illinois, <clears throat> and he came with uh, to watch the car run. And I had been talking about a land speed car and all that too, kind of a little bit. So uh, he says, "Wow, that's fantastic." So I said, "Yeah." I said, "If we want to." Set a land speed record, although uh, we can't, we don't have enough uh, energy coming out of this rocket. We need to have a much larger rocket and uh, a higher specific impulse, which is a factor that uh, has to do with the amount of fuel per second that you burn per pound of thrust. So I said, you know, we can we can run the hydrogen peroxide with. Uh, gasoline, kerosene, whatever. He said, how about natural gas? <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> and at that time, uh, the gas industry was promoting liquefied natural gas. And uh, they want, they were trying to uh, get fleet vehicles to use liquefied natural gas, you know, like taxi cabs and bus. Yep. Bill or uh, Dick, I think we lost him there for a second. Yeah. Anyway, all right, we're going to try to get him back. Um, yeah, this is a kind of a fascinating story. Hopefully, I can get him up to talking about the uh, um, blue flame, hence natural gas, blue flame. You know, which is pretty amazing because you know if you ever have a, mm-hmm. if you have a gas stove at home mm-hmm. and you turn it on, you got blue flame coming out. Of course, we all know about blue flames because it's like if you're you're intense, you white, being welder, yeah, you know, white, blue, and then the the warmer the color it's just like the color spectrum it just the, the closer you get to the oranger that's cooler and urban and the closer you get to white flame it's it's and blue flame is all very hot right so like if you're cutting with a cutting torch where do you want it you want it the blue flame right 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 yeah yeah okay yep. cool yeah so anyway but uh it's interesting because this guy was in the point he's in in our conversation here he's talking about the uh um, the application, you know, using natural gas. Dick, are you there with us? Okay, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> You're back. Okay, good. All right, so tell us, tell us how uh, the Bloom Flame claim came to fruition, then, as you were. Okay, well, uh, so my boss said, "Why don't you write some proposals on uh, liquefied natural gas rocket for the land speed record?" So I did, and uh, both of our projects came through the American Gas Association. Uh, which is comprised of almost all the natural gas industry, uh, gas producers, distributors, and hardware manufacturers. So I went to New York City to American Gas Association and gave them a, uh, uh, showed them the, the, the videos and went through the proposal with them. So they, they offered to then promote it within the American Gas Association members. And they, they, they finally agreed. They put the money up. So the way it, was, the way it turned out, uh, the last time we ran the X-1 was at o- Oklahoma City Drag Strip in 19, September 1968. And a bunch of the uh, gas industry executives were there to watch it run. And they were sold. They, they agreed right then and there to sponsor the, the Blue Flame. So... Uh, we were all set to go. We retired the X-1. Uh, Chuck Suva, 
our driver and close friend uh, unfortunately decided he needed to uh, keep running on the drag strip. He, he drove a friend's car, a uh, top fuel dragster, a month later, crashed and was killed. Oh, sad. So here we are. We, we, we've got our land speed record project going, and our driver and close friend is dead. So but we had to keep moving on, which we did. So uh, at that point, we had a shop in Milwaukee, and uh, we knew we were going to, uh, we wanted to run the car in 1969, September 1969. So we needed to get more engineering help to, to get this thing rolling and built on time. So since uh, I, I had been working at IIT, I talked to a couple of professors, and so he said, they said, okay, we'll get some of the grad students to work on different parts of the project. So it was like free, la free labor. Uh -huh. <laughs> so uh, we went ahead and, and did that. Uh, uh, Dr. Torta and his student worked on the aerodynamics. We did some uh, wind tunnel testing at Ohio State University. And Dr. Uzgaris was working on uh, various parts of the structure and so on. So uh, the, the car was entirely scratch built, except for the tires, which we got from Goodyear. But uh, what I always like to say about the, the project is uh, all the uh, land speed guys back in the 60s we're buying jet engines and then seeing how fast they would go. We decided how fast we wanted to go and build a rocket engine to go that fast. So our goal was supersonic, which is somewhere around 750 miles an hour. And so we designed and built the engine to put out 22,000 pounds of thrust. So we'd gone up a thousand times basically from our little 25 pounder. But uh, Goodyear, since we had never been to the South Flats before, didn't want us to go out there and go bonsai. So even though we had tested the tires and wheels at 850 miles an hour Ooh. at Goodyear, uh, they, they, they gave us a limit because they owned the tires. They said they didn't, in 69, or the first time we went out there, they didn't want us going over 700. So we had to agree to that. But that was okay. Then we figured the following year we could go out and go supersonic. Anyhow, Having the students working on the project, one of the problems was the, it uh, slowed down our schedule because th these guys were going to school and had exams and all that. And so the input we were getting on the design wasn't coming fast enough. And September 69 came and went. We didn't have the car finished. And we just about had it finished <clears throat> pretty close uh, by the end of December. But uh, as, it, as it turned out, uh, we weren't able to run it in 69, which is what we had in the contract with the American Gas Association. And so basically, they exercised uh, their option to take over the ownership of the car. So we didn't own the car, but we were still going to run it in 1970. But we were able to, uh, to get the car completed in 1970. and. Uh, we spent a little bit of time uh, since our dri our driver Chuck Suba had had passed away. We were looking for another driver. At one point, Don Garland had offered to drive it, and we were ready to go with him. And in uh, 
we had a big press conference in uh, May of 69, going back to then. And the night before, he called and said he couldn't drive the car because his wife and mother didn't want him to do it. And I, I respected that. But then we had to find another driver. Well, Gary Gavlich, after we had retired the X1, had come out to visit us. He wanted to. He wanted us to put the X1 back into action again on the tracks, and he wanted to drive it. And he had left his resume. So we looked at his resume after Don had uh, decided not to drive, and Gary had driven uh, dragsters. He had driven drag boats. He had driven a jet dragster. So he was the kind of a guy that could quickly adapt to something new, we felt, so we signed Gary to drive the car. And we eventually we got it out there then in uh, 1970. We, we hit the salt flats in the middle of September, <clears throat> and those is when SCTA guys were done with their Bonneville Nationals we could get up there. And we had, we had the car set up then we were to go after uh, the mile and kilometer records. So the, the mile and kilometer distances, the, tr the timing traps are, are set together. So when you enter the mile, you start the clocks for both the kilometer and the mile timing. And then you hit the, the kilometer uh, turn, out, turn off light, and then you hit the mile turn off light. So you get both times uh, timed together at the same time. You, gotta, you have to time it in two directions within an hour. So that's the, one of the big challenges. So we went out there and fired it up, and on the first run we had a problem with the motor. We blew it up. <laughs> oh. So what do you do now? Well, we could still run it a little bit uh, to get to check out the handling, so we ran it for uh, about a week. Yeah, we ran it for a week at uh, speeds up to into the 400-mile-an-hour range. And so we knew the car was handling good, and... Uh, what could we do to, to uh, fix the motor? So I, I made arrangements to uh, have a new, uh, some new parts made uh, in Milwaukee. I flew out to Milwaukee, got the parts, and came back in a week. We re rebuilt the motor, and uh, we had it detuned from 22,000 pounds thrust to 15,000, anyhow, to keep it under 700. So uh, we started running the car, and then we had... We had different problems happening. First of all, we were tuning the motor uh, by, by running the car, and we had uh, we were running a little rich at one point and burned off the parachutes because of excess flame behind the car. We had a problem on another time where the uh, hydrogen peroxide was overflowing in the peroxide tank and drained into the nose cone, which was lined with uh, polystyrene which began smoking. It didn't actually catch fire, but it looked bad. We had to pull the nose cone off and uh, hose everything down and clean it up. And, and then we had another run where we had, we had gone fast enough on the first leg uh, to set a world land speed record. <clears throat> but we had a problem with the pressure regulator. It was leaking. We couldn't make the second run. So after messing around with all this stuff <clears throat> and solving the various problems, we got down to where we really needed to get the job done because we were into the uh, getting near the end of October, and the, and the weather on the salt flats was changing. 
So we, we were running 90% hydrogen peroxide with the LNG. Uh, we managed to get some 98%, which would give us more oxygen. We could run a little bit more uh, LNG with it. And so we did a couple tune-up runs. So uh, finally on October 23rd, we got everything together. Gary hopped into the car, uh, made his first run, made his first run, and uh, it was fast. He was in, in the range where we were going to be able to set a record. Nothing went wrong. Turned the car around, ran it back in the one hour, and we ended up with a kilo record, 630 miles an hour and 622 in the mile. So the kilo record is the f fastest uh, world record, so that's the absolute record. Dick, we thinking maybe we could go back and go faster the next day, but that night it snowed. <laughs> <laughs> Dick, on that note, okay, on that note, we're up against the clock. We're out of time, yeah. but here's what I want to do. I want to have you back on the show in the next, I'm going to check my schedule in the next couple of weeks, and I want you to continue the story because I still want to talk about some of the amazing cars, the motorcycles, and of course your bicycle things that you're doing now too. So uh, I want to okay. thank you very much for coming on the show. Very good interview, very interesting, but I have tons and tons of questions because I've been making notes. So in the meantime, again, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show this evening, and uh, I'll definitely be in touch with you, and we're going to have you on for part two. How about that? Okay, I look forward to it. Okay, thank you very much. Hey, I want to thank my very special guest, Dick Keller, land speed record holder with the famous Blue Flame. In the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to the Central Getting Cards. Don't forget to check us out here every Tuesday night on the Tap Talk Radio Network. I said it right this time. Don't forget to follow us on our social media, right, Bobby? Yeah, all that stuff. Yep. Yeah, all that stuff. Okay. Check out our website, golfstreetmotorsports.com. I'll see some of the car shows. Don't forget, Meekum's coming up in a couple of weeks. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.